You are listening to the Down the Wormhole podcast, exploring the strange and fascinating relationship between science and religion. This week, we are exploring how that relationship gets worked out in real life with one of the current Sinai and Synapses fellows. Sinai and Synapses is a two-year fellowship committed to elevating the discourse surrounding religion and science and where the five of us first met. So, without further ado, our guest today is the assistant rabbi at Temple Sinai Congregation of Toronto, Ontario. His rabbinic thesis focused on theologies in the Babylonian Talmud, including on the way the Talmud presents the intersection between physiology, health, religious practice, and spirituality. He is a member of the Toronto Board of Rabbis and represents the organization as a board member of the Christian Jewish Dialogue of Greater Toronto, which fosters relationships between a number of faith communities in the Greater Toronto area. Welcome to the podcast, Rabbi Jordan Shainer. Thank you. I'm so excited to get to be here, and I um, uh, really appreciate that you uh, read from my bio just beautifully. Um, you, you didn't. I don't know if it was in there, but um, one of the interfaith activities that we have, I have been doing since I moved to Toronto, is curling. Um, and we, we, uh, we. I'm very sad because we would have been starting curling uh, uh, this week or next week, but it's not happening this year. So I'm, uh, oh, I'm totally bummed. Um, but you're a Colorado native learning a Canadian sport. It's true. And, but it has wow. given me a lot of insight into this country that I have moved to. And, um, also it is, it is very fun and feels like bowling on ice with people who are awesome and nobody's good at it. So <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I was a janitor for some time. I think I might have a leg up on the competition. You, you would be okay. I think. Yeah. I'm it's a pretty a- good sweeper, I think. <laughs> <laughs> but that's a wonderful little bit of trivia about yourself uh, to start off with. So maybe, you know, here at the beginning, how about you just tell us a bit about yourself, starting from whichever place you would like to, from birth or recently it's up to you i do i do think there's something to that you know starting if you want to start from biographical details of a jewish person like you asked me to talk about from my birth on um i think one of the things that i have noticed is that a great a good number of us if you ask us to start from our birth that's too late we will tend to answer this question uh starting from my grandparents lived in Poland, or my grandparents lived in uh, Czechoslovakia, or wherever it was. Um, And that's no exception for me. I always, you know, I cannot answer this question without explaining that, uh, especially to another Jewish person, by the way, um, (laughs) that my mom's side of the family, her dad was from, uh, um, it's now in Ukraine, but was then Czechoslovakia. And her mom was from Athens. And they were they were both uh, survivors. Uh, my dad's family came over earlier than that, but from you know Western Russian Empire times, right? Like Pale of Settlement, where lots of us come from. Um, yeah. So there's this. There's not this. It's really like I cannot understand when when speaking to uh, right. Which is not to say that I am a 
any of any of the I have lived through any of those things. Not to say that I have um, uh, any of the experiences that they have had, but to but to explain the anxiety, um, to explain <laughs> the the uh, other personal characteristics that come along with being a, a member of the tribe. Um, there's this geography and history thing that we all I. I I've met maybe one or two people who will tell you, start this question with, I was born in such and such place at such and such time. Every Jewish person I know, almost across the line, we will we start with the geography and the history and, um, you know, where, where are your people from um, before you? Um, and I think that that's, that's a part of this, this stubborn thing, I think, is that is, you know, and something that's really interesting to me um, is just examining the way, you know, the, the way that these, these stories get passed down and the way that we identify ourselves, not just from our own sphere of experience, but from two generations, three generations talking about, you know, where we've come from, what foods we got, what recipes we got from our grand grandmas and grandpas and bubbies and Zadies and, you know, and everyone else, um, how we got here to this country you know, where we think we'll go next. Canada's pretty popular right now, so I'm among, among the Jews. You, you, um, you're ahead of the curve. I'm barely. So, so as I said, uh, Jordan, that, you know, I was born and raised in Germany as American military, and so I just um, have always been so fascinated with that time frame and learning as much as I can and hearing about people's experiences. And I know it's not your personal experiences, but your family experiences. And so... You talked about how one side of your family is from former Czechoslovakia area. Is that right? Your father's my side? mom's my mom's Sorry. side. Mom. Her her dad okay. Uh, okay. was okay. Right, 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 right. And and her mom is from Athens. Um, and then what about your father's side? But you said they came over earlier. When did they come over? My dad's father was the youngest child of nine kids. He was the only one born in the United States. Um, mm-hmm. They, so that's 19, that's like 1918, I think, that they okay. made it over. I think that's, that's you know, the end of, the United States has this, you know, had this big wave of immigration from the Palo settlement, uh, where, which is, which is the Western Russian Empire, where the, all of the Jewish communities kind of got shunted into uh, this, like, strip of, of, mm-hmm. uh, north to south on the western edge of the empire um that uh you know the, from 1880 to 19 1920 really from the the beginning of the of the end of the czarist empire to the to its end is when this we have this big push of jews to to the united states and my dad's family was part of that okay so do you have any stories or anything about what it was like for your mom's side of the family? When did they flee former Czechoslovakia? They didn't flee. They were um, they were imprisoned, enslaved. Lots of them were murdered. Um, so my dad, her, her dad was a. Well, um, I'm sorry. No, no, it's okay. Sorry for that. You don't have to apologize. Language. You don't have to apologize. Why? It's okay. You right. you assume that because I'm here. That that means he, uh, my folks got out, but that's not the case. My mom's dad was um, he was maybe twelve or thirteen when they were deported. To um, he was his family was deported. Um, his his older bro- he had an older brother who was deported first to 
the Eastern Front as a as a slave laborer, and then um, his his father and he were deported to a uh, like a work camp where they were um, uh, uh, making munitions. And his mother, um, his mother and his sister were sent to Auschwitz Birkenau. His mother was murdered. His sister somehow survived, and he had one other brother who also survived, but I don't know where they were, where his, where his other brother was. Um, then, after the the they were liberated by the by the USSR, um, they were in DP camps um, in I think they were in East Germany, and my grandfather was in a DP camp until the mid fifties. So. 55, he finally got permission to, he had tried to go to um, Israel. Before that, he was actually, he had a ticket on this um, ship called the Exodus. I don't know if you know that story. Um, It's a, it was before the state was founded. Um, There, you know, the British were trying to halt Jewish immigration to the mandate of Palestine. They, um, they this there's this ship called the Exodus that had all of these Holocaust survivors on it. Um, that they were they were going to uh, immigrate to the information, not quite yet a state of Israel, and the British barred the transport and sent them back to another DP camp in Cyprus, and it was this, it was a big. You know, they a lot of them got sick, a lot of them died. It was this big thing where it was a really bad look for the UK that they were taking rounding up Holocaust survivors and putting them back in prison camps, basically. Um <laughs> so that was my grandfather had a ticket to be on that ship but missed the boat somehow and uh and <laughs> ended up in fifty I think I wanna say it's fifty-five. He his he had a cousin, I think it might be his older brother actually, who had been had wound up in Brooklyn. Um, and got him a whatever the papers were to come over as a and learn to be a garment worker. There was this whole big push for garment workers that um, the Jewish communities in the United States and in Canada and Canada actually is where this started. That there was this push to bring people over as uh, uh, to teach them the skills of of sewing and and uh, mending clothes as a as a to work in the garment business because it was it was like an understaffed industry and. And so that's how he got his visa. In the meantime, in the DK, in the DP camps, he had reunited with his siblings, which was, um, which so that's a that's like a talk about a miraculous event, yeah. Right? His he you know he tells he would tell the story. He wouldn't talk about it actually, but I um, he was interviewed by the um, the University of Southern California did this huge huge documentation project where they came and filmed survivors giving their testimonies in the 90s and he was filmed by that and i've seen that filming talks about being in the dp camp after his liberation not not knowing whether any you know he'd he'd watched his father die of of illness uh in the work camp uh he had heard that his mother was gassed he didn't know if his siblings had survived um and he was like walking down the street one day and he saw his sister across the street in the in the dp camp um so that's a like that's a you know talk about a a miracle right like that to me is is we started sort of sorry now i'm i'm off of the on to another question that got asked before we started recording um (laughs) but to me that's a a you know to me that's like a a real when you talk about a the the hebrew word and for miracle is nace 
it's not a it's not a an event it's not just an event that you know is beyond the natural circumstances it's it really means a sign or a banner in hebrew right so when we talk about an event i don't think it has to be a supernatural event but an event that gives you a you know a banner on on your life a, a sign for a moment for you that uh, that something is meaningful that something is important like that's a that's a nace to me that my my grandfather happened to run into his sister after being imprisoned for you know almost almost 12 or 13 years um <laughs> you know that's that's amazing so okay so but that's uh, that's my grandfather's story my grandmother on my mom's side uh, also was a survivor but she had a totally different story because they were they lived in athens they were a very wealthy family very cosmopolitan family they owned they owned a textile factory and they bribed their neighbors to hide them throughout the whole the whole war so they were in they couldn't they were we talk about a pandemic um you know this whole six months that we've been you know kind of trying to stay inside like they were stuck inside for six years <laughs> you know it yeah. just you know they could they didn't leave if they left the house they they only did so when you know when they, no, they were sure no one, no one could see them my grandma used to tell a story a very dramatic story about having to sleep in a coffin with a corpse one night to hide i don't know if that's true she was she was a little bit on the, of a dramatic person. Um, but if she had a dramatic story, so it's not, you know, right. it's, um, <laughs> it's a it's, dramatic time. It was a dramatic time. Yeah. No. So, right. so, but, so, but they, they had, um, family in the States before, from before the, the war and they, they, you know, they all survived together in this little, you know, Heidi house and they, oops, um, it was a terrible way of describing it. Um, but, but then, and then when they, when it was over, they, you know, they were, they didn't have anything going on in Europe anymore. So they, they like, they got a, you know, they, they had, they got a connection, I think also in the you know early fifties to come over and they moved to Colorado and, and to be with my, they had an uncle who was there already. And my grandfather, who was in Brooklyn, uh, in the, you know, in the working in the garment business, as soon as he learned how to, you know, sew and to be, a uh, to, to make a living at it, he, um, you know, he had all of this, all these health problems from the camps. Um, he had a especially respiratory problems at that time. And so they sent him, they sent him to Colorado. They sent him out West because it's drier and, and higher up. And they, so to, for his health, they just said, you can't stay in Brooklyn, go West. Basically the doctor, I don't know who they is. Um, but he just right. on his own, he on his own boards a plane, flies to Colorado and just sort of starts to try and make a living. And he's, you know, living in Colorado all by himself. And he sees in the Jewish newspaper, a picture of my grandmother, um, and her family, um, at, you know, sort of like celebrating them as new immigrants or something. And he, the next day takes that paper and goes to their front door and knocks on the door and says, I want to marry your daughter. And, like, <laughs> and, you know, um, and, and then he finds out that they, no one in their family speaks in any language except for Greek. So, he, so he just starts hanging around until he knows enough, enough Greek to like, talk to everybody and he became part of the family and that's that right <laughs> wow wow I mean, my grandfather was an amazing 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 person he was he was you know he was the like the most kind-hearted menschy person you ever met he was a genius for languages i think he spoke 
10 or 12 languages fluently. Um, but he wasn't like, you know, he, this is a man who had, he had no education, <laughs> he had no, you know, who had no um, uh, connections where he was and, you know, and made it work and made it, you know, he, he started a, a tailor business. He was, a, he was in the, he was mending people's clothes and doing dry cleaning and, you know, and he put his kids through college and he, you know, did all, and like, it, to me, like, that's an amazing story. One of the hardest things about the story of how, I, you know, my family came to be in the United States and lately watching what's been going on, you know, um, becoming aware that the story of my family is not the story of lots of people in the, in the U S lots of people in, in lots of countries like that, you know, <laughs> having been raised with this notion of America is the place where, you know, you, you can, you, you can come here with nothing and no one and become, you know, put yourself right. through whatever. And, and knowing that that's not the case, you know, it's been, it's been tough on my, like, certainly I've seen that play out in a poli- in, in a political way in my family, like people, you know, we have arguments all the time about stuff like that. So I, you know, it's like a, it's an interesting thing but i feel very lucky talking about speaking of miraculous things like i feel very much that uh um i have been very very lucky to be where i am so i've i've heard you talk a lot about place and the importance of of being in a place and being grounded in a history uh not just being a a lone wolf on an island (laughs) um your rabbinic thesis uh, focused on on the Babylonian Talmud, yes. And it seems like from the moment you got to your synagogue, you were teaching on the Talmud, right? Yeah. I saw that you had a class on progressive Talmud, and to me, and in, in my relative ignorance of the Talmud, it's uh, it's it seems like a series of documents written about a particular time and place and applying truths to particular situations and trying and the study of it seems to be trying to draw out truths that can then be applied to other situations am i am i on track i with- I, I think it's there's i think that scripture is like that in general i think that that's a good general way that i think about scripture um, and and text as you know reflective of its time and place but full of truths that are that are not so particular to that time or place right that that can that are um meaning help us make meaning of our lives wherever we are but talmud is a special kind of scripture because it's actually not a document at all it's an oral it's an oral project um it, it happens to be written down now it happens to be committed to writing in the you know, I th- some people think seventh or eighth centuries. I think I tend to think it's ninth or tenth or eleventh. Like it's there's the there's a there's a big debate in Talmudic scholarship about when the Talmud is done, and I I think it's later than earlier, but that could be I could be totally wrong. Um, but the the but it's a it's a it's a conversation. Um, the Talmud is a conversation that begins. Uh, according to the Talmud, with Moses on Mount Sinai, and continues through generations to, you know, it's completely passed down orally. And then, you know, with all of the 
the Talmud even talks about the mistakes in the transmission and the confusion, how confusing of a game of telephone that is to go back from Moses up until the, you know, we're talking fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh centuries of this era. That's like for you guys to, you know, to have the game of telephone from Jesus till today, right? And the and and so, right? So the 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 game of telephone, but it's a, but not committed to writing. Um, committed to memory and committed to oral transmission. And then it's really, it's, it's, it is a lot of the conversations that happen in the Talmud are about things that even in the time of the Talmud had not existed for hundreds and hundreds of years. So there are whole sections of the Talmud devoted to the laws of sacrifices in the temple. The temple was, right, the temple was done 70 CE. Here we are in in 400, 500, uh, still trying to figure out how, what, how exactly the priest waved their hand uh, on a particular day or, you know, it's, it's and, and so the, why are they trying to figure that out? Well, one is the idea that, that it matters because it's gonna, it's because, because they are, uh, you know, holding out hope that, that, you know, we, we go back to that eventually. But two, because it's not just about that specific time and place that it's the meaning of 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 every gesture every every um symbol every uh ritual every action is something that we can learn about the about being being human about uh about god about what it means to um participate in this community that is thousands of years old right and and that that it's you know often it's in that conversation about was it like this or was it like that and and if we if we have an opinion you have to then say why you 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 find you know exactly this thing about scripture that is it's not about the particulars so much as the conver- the questions that are underneath it the the ideas that are underneath it and and um i love Talmud for that reason that it's it's often a um, on the surface a very difficult to follow conversation, but underneath there's a there's a question that um, to me always almost always feels really important and urgent that they're not saying, <laughs> and and it's a matter of you know asking what's that question that's underneath. So, can I ask you something for clarification? Mm-hmm. So those of us, you know, so I'm Christian. I don't have a lot of background on this, on the Talmud at all. I have less knowledge than Zach what, talked about earlier. What is the distinction between the Talmud and the Hebrew scriptures? So when we talk about the Hebrew Bible, the Tanakh, we're talking about texts that were committed to writing very early, the, the written Torah, the five books of Moses, and the, then the two sections that follow it, the Nevi'im, the prophets, and the Kituvim, the writings which are, it's a library of books, basically, is how I would describe right. that. And that um, the Torah and the, and the prophets and the writings are, they are a basis for Judaism, but they are not, they are not Judaism, right? Judaism's conversation of Torah, when we talk about the Torah, we often talk about those, the Hebrew Bible in that way. Um, but when we talk about Torah as, a, as an idea, we're not talking about that specific group of writings, we're talking about the conversation that has continued from Moses to today. So lots of other texts, including the Talmud, including commentaries on the Hebrew Bible, including philosophy and music and art and poetry. And, and right to me, that 
um, when we talk about Torah, we're talking about the culture of, of essential questions, what it is to be a Jewish person. And the Talmud is really, I think, the document of, of training us to think in that way, right? In a way, it's not a scripture in the way that the Bible is a scripture where it says the word of God is X, Y, and Z. Um, it's, it's, it's more of like, oh, God says this. Well, why do you think that is? What if God didn't say that? What if, right? And, and we go through all of the questions, but you sure, you, you sure it says this and not that? Um, and it's, it's more about how, it's more about a, a, a way of thinking um, that is non, non-linear, that is, that is networked, that, that jumps from topic to topic very frequently. <laughs> that is, is, it's a, it's a way to practice making connections between the scripture and what it says for the time that it was in and the reality of the time we are in now, whenever that is. So there's a, this is also, I think, talking about a secret of Jewish survival, of Jewish stubbornness, the insistence that whatever, whether we can or cannot perform the rituals as described in the Hebrew Bible, whether our religion looks the same or totally different, that we're having the same conversation, (laughs) <laughs> that to me right, is the right. is is kind of the secret sauce. It sounds like you have like a leg up on on the rest of us when it came time for like covid tied religion where like you're kind of already used to interpreting and reinterpreting experience for any given situation and now here we go suddenly you can't meet together and you have to figure out how to do it and I may just be projecting because I'm having a hard time with it. And I like to imagine other people are not having, (laughs) we're having, we've had a hard time too. It's not like, it's not a, it's not, I don't want to, you know, I don't want to make it sound like we're, you know, like Judaism, like part of having the same conversation also means that there are, there are limits and boundaries to that conversation that, you know, like are being tested all the time. And sometimes you, you go beyond them and you find like, nope, this is not the same conversation anymore. So, so one of can the, I interrupt? Yeah. Uh, I'm sorry. It just made me think about something. So, you know, a lot of this stuff within, or sometimes conversations within Christianity is, you know, between literalism and non-literalism. So if you hold the, the Bible to be literally true, Right, and you have to take it word for word. Is that a big conversation within the Jewish traditions too? That well, since the Hebrew scriptures literally say this, this is the way it is. It sounds like things change. So it's yes and no. Have changed. Part of this, you know, a missing piece of the puzzle that I haven't pointed out here is the conversation that Moses passed down orally is, in some ways, completing and explaining the written text which was passed down. You know written by, uh, you know, as books, and that the written text is um, in the tradition, thought of as, yes, literally the word of God, but not complete. Okay. So that the oral tradition is equally the word of God, as in Moses is passing it down orally because Moses heard it from God, and and that um, even, even the things that are very clearly, you know, Rabbi Rav Ashi, who is a fifth uh, or sixth century rabbi, who think we think of as being the last of the rabbis of the Talmud, he is saying things, teaching his own interpretation, but it's thought that that interpretation is included within the Mosaic tradition. Okay, so that so that what we mean when we say literalism in Judaism 
is something totally different because it's not like you can look at the page of the Torah and understand it um, on on its face in a way that is complete um, uh, without the interpretation and the reinterpretation and the other reinterpretation, right? And so there are these layers then that let us have our cake and eat it too. <laughs> we get to say, right? And, there, and certainly there are communities, uh, there are Judaisms, there are communities within Judaism uh, where, you know, the, the evolution debate that I see you guys having all the time is really, re- like, they really do have a stake in that. And they say, no, it says in the Torah that the world is 6,000 years old, and we mean it, right? <laughs> and, and yet, there is a whole tradition that is legitimate and really, ex- you know, part, really part of the tradition, not like a, it's not a separate branch that says, well, yeah, I mean, like, this world that we know is maybe 6,000 years old, but the world is the universe, the beginning, you know, has wait could be could be millions and millions of years ago but we just right. when we talk about the creation of the world we're talking about it from our perspective not from you know so like i think it's not as common for jews to have this problem of um god is a we think of god as a, the creator of the universe and and Darwin comes along and blows that up for us. Like like we can be like, okay, yeah, Darwin sounds like a good explanation. That's you know not in the Torah, but it could be completing the Torah that we don't know. Okay. <laughs> I should note. I should note for our listeners who are probably listening to this maybe in November. I'm not sure when exactly this is going to air. That today is October fifth, twenty twenty, which um, puts us in the middle of Sukkot. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So thank you, first of all, for being here <laughs> during this time. This seems like a very stressful time or the end of a very stressful time. Yeah, it's the end of the stressful time. The Sukkot is my favorite because it's, it's all of the it's all the stress is done and we're just relaxing now. It's good. You know what? I've only ever experienced uh, Judaism from the outside. I, I, I was I lived in a uh, above a synagogue when I was in seminary and did all of the cleanup and stuff on on Saturdays and the setup. And Sukkot was fun for me because I got to there was like tents and stuff and yeah. <laughs> outdoor construction and it was fun. Um, how has been, how has been, how has been time this? It's been so um, weird. How has this time been? It's been so weird because of the pandemic. Like it's, it's, you know, yeah. and Sukkot is weird. It's an, it's like, it's a hard holiday, you know, where I am, Sukkot is not, as important as the holidays that have just preceded it in most, in a lot of people's minds, uh, in my community and the attention given to it is much less, which is a win for me because it means that I get to relax into Sukkot a little bit. But the, the sad thing is for this year that normally we would be having lots of gatherings in people's backyards in Sukkot or in the, you know, we have a big sukkah in the, in the parking lot of our shul. Um, and this year it's very limited, we're, even though it's outside, we're kind of, you know, case numbers are really going up here and we've decided that we're going to just not do that. So it's, it's been really weird and hard. Um, I have never been able to have us cause I've been living in an apartment buildings for the last 10, 12 years of my life. It's been a long time since I've been able to have a, my own sukkah. So it's not that weird for me that I'm waving, you know, we have this lulav and etrog, the, um, 
Um, it's a palm branch and a myrtle branch and a willow branch that we hold together with a an etrog, which is like a fruit, like a it's like a big misshapen lemon, and we hold it together and we wave it around. It's this very weird paganish kind of thing that we do. Um, and I, you know, I'm used to doing that inside, but a lot of the people I've talked to this year have been like, "Can you wave it inside? Can you do that in your house? I don't know." And I'm like, y- "Yes, yeah, you can and do. It's okay." But, but it's, yeah, it's been a weird time this year. Um, but normally it's my favorite, it's my favorite, favorite time of year because we're, we're cozying, we're getting cozy in our flannel shirts and our, and our wool socks and we're drinking hot cider and we're hanging out outside and it's very relaxing. (laughs) (laughs) But you've had to become like a... Uh, a video producer and a uh, YouTube rabbi and had to adjust to all these technological changes and uh, adjust perhaps your your message to, uh, to to help comfort people in this time and just thinking a lot on your feet <laughs> has that has that mm-hmm. been exhausting? for you has this been energizing for you have you found i mean you're you're still fresh in this right so you still have the sticker on you and the shine from uh is what you you were installed last year yeah so what a way to to start right how so how how is your energy level how are you finding uh, are you finding things to rejoice in to be excited about Um, are you rethinking your career path no I'm I'm very happy in my career right now. I really am. Good no, answer. I have to say, really, like, like it's been, it's been a tough year. It's been exhausting. I feel I can't. It's hard for me to keep separate how much of the exhaustion is because I'm new to this and I don't know what I'm doing and I make mistakes all the time, and how much is because we're all new to this and we're all making mistakes and we're all figuring it out. And at the same time, I feel very, very lucky to be doing what I'm doing to get to work with people to help make meaning in their lives, to become there to comfort them when things are tough like this, to be able to, to be able to, to, to work on a team. The team that I work with feels like, like the rabbi that I work with, Rabbi Dolgan, lots of people in this, in my position have a collegial relationship with their, their um, supervised with their bosses, but my rabbi is my rabbi, right? I feel very much like he's been there for me through this year in a way that's helped me get through it. And I don't, I don't feel, I, I feel that very, very lucky about that. I am, I have been exhausted. I think when we had our Sinai synapses meeting in the spring, I, I think I just flat out said like, nothing's getting me through this. I'm tired. Go away. <laughs> I think I said that on a meeting. I felt bad because we were talking Nothing about is getting me through this. That's um, brilliant. No. And, and, you know, um, I'll, I'll put this out there. I'm a big believer, uh, in people who are in helping professions, having, uh, the support of the therapist. And it helps that I'm in a country where, uh, healthcare is, is not a, not an issue. And where I like the therapy that I'm getting was, you know, I had a referral from my GP and that means that I'm not, I don't have to stress about how to pay for it either. Right. It's like, it's, I feel it's very lucky and I'm not trying to brag. It's just the, it's, it's something that I think like, um, so, so this kind of mental health care 
has been a big help for me through lots of stages of this process of becoming a rabbi. Certainly in this last year, it's been a help. Um, but, but it's something that I think lots of people in, in helping professions need. And that, um, what just to make a quick plug here that lots of people in our generation need. And, um, one of my members, one of my congregants here, they are the founders of an organization called Ellie's place, uh, named after their, their son who, who they lost to suicide. And the, and, you know, we're in the middle of a big fundraising push, uh, around the Toronto marathon, um, which is all virtual this year. And, and the idea that like, it, we people in our generation need this kind of care, support and care this year. You know, lately, like it's a, it's a coming. It's it's a crisis. We're in the middle of it, and and um, to find ways to support people in getting that help is is something I really really care about. Something I really yeah. have been has been really driving me lately. Do you have a web address for that? Yeah, um, I do. Let me see if I can find it. That's a plug that I approve of. Mm-hmm. We're big fans of of m- mental health in this podcast. Yeah, because <laughs> it doesn't come easy to any of us. Everyone, yeah, no, and you know, it's it's. Um, I think it's the kind of thing, unless you know, uh, you know, until you've gone through some, had some mental health care. I think it's hard to imagine how much of a difference it can make, but it makes a big difference. So just the web address for Ellie's Place is elliesplace.org, E-L-I-S-P-L-A-C-E. So anyone out there um, who would like to, to help and to, to contribute to... Yeah, we're, we're, what they're trying to do is build a, a full-time residential facility for people going through uh, severe need and, and, and to help reintegrate um, after that. So it's a, I mean, like, it's a, and it's, it's you know... <sighs> Like I'm lucky, I'm lucky, you know, I feel really lucky that we were, I was able to get coverage. I know that even in Canada, it's not a given and there are big gaps and, um, and in the States it's the same. So what drew you initially towards, uh, the Sinai and Synapses Fellowship in particular? Rabbi Middleman. I mean, it's, it's, it's very clearly, I, I had a class with Rabbi Middleman in rabbinical school and it was my favorite class of all time. Um, what and class is that? he, I mean, he basically just came and did sign and synapses for a couple of weeks at, 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 uh, at Hebrew Union college. I mean, really, it was amazing. He brought all these guest speakers in. We talked to, you know, we talked about, it was, you know, it's it on religion and science broadly, but you know, some of the topics we covered, we talked, we, we talked to people who study the science of religious actions and, and the brain science around that, which I think is really interesting. We talked about uh, notions of free choice and determinism, and the and the sort of you know the way that our bodies kind of have their a will of their own sometimes, which is was really interesting. Um, we talked, you know, what we had a one of my favorite guests was an astrophysicist by the name of Dr. Howard Smith, who is an Orthodox Jew who teaches astrophysics and origins of the universe in a scientific way. And his book is um, about, it's not, it's about the Jewish mystical tradition, the Kabbalah and it's, and about astrophysics and, and not in a way that is like, see really Judaism is really very scientific. Don't you think it's not like that at all. It's like, this is, this is, this is the, you know, the Kabbalistic origin of the universe. This is the, 
astrophysical notion, you know, that we have the, he talks more about, um, sing, you know, singularity, um, and then about, uh, multiple universes, but he's very much sort of lays out the science and the Judaism in a way that is complementary, but not about sort of claiming, a claiming, a this really proves that kind of thing, which I think is exactly the right approach because if, anytime I see that it makes me go, you don't understand either of these things. Then. <laughs> like, exactly. And, it seems so counter uh, counterintuitive to so many people that the really true, deep, best connecting point between like religious thought and scientific thought, in my opinion, is the mystical traditions. And not not because it's all kind of who out there and and all of that, but it's like it's it's within each major religious tradition, it seems to be the only group that is really willing to say, I don't know. And there are things that are well beyond my comprehension, but I'm still going to pursue them anyway, which is just the heart of science. Yeah. Right? Is, is, is about being wrong productively. Right. And I think that that's sort of his approach for sure, Dr. Smith. Um, okay. But he really gave, he really impressed me in his lecture in that he did have a point also, which was, that you can you can take this dialogue that the or the argument either religion is correct or science is correct and can't be both ways and you can use that in a way even even if you are on the progressive end of things if you take if you take a scientific outlook and say i only believe in science that you can use that as a way to sort of let yourself off the hook too right to say to say and therefore and you know i only believe what is provable and therefore you know, nothing, there's no proof that anything has any meaning or that there's anyone uh, watching and therefore I can act like a dick <laughs> basically is what he, and, 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 and I think that there's some truth to that, that's some, for some people, I don't, you know, look, I don't think that that's most people, but I think that there is this, I, I think that um, part of the culture war piece of this is that on either side, there is this, notion that I don't want I don't want responsibility for the world I live in, whether that's because I want to give it all to God or because I want to give it to nothing. Like that's very firmly to me what my religious tradition is against. The notion the notion of Judaism really is not that we have to listen to God and do what God says. The notion of Judaism is whether God says it or not, your feet are on this earth and you have a responsibility to do something with it while you're here. <laughs> that to me is, is the, is the most important piece of this. And what, what I loved about Rabbi Middleman's class was that we got to sort of hear from both sides of this conversation in a way that wasn't about that culture war piece. And that was sort of pointing to the, I don't, the, the importance and the responsibility of saying, being willing to say, I don't know. Um, and so it was the minute that I saw that there was an opening for Sinai and Synapses Fellowships this year, uh, this last year, I was, I was there because it's just, it's, he's just great. And it's a great uh, organization. And I'm very, very, very happy. <laughs> and I feel very lucky. I, you know, based at looking at the resumes of, the, of all of these other fellows, I, I'm like, I don't belong here. 
Um, it's very, very. Those were my thoughts exactly <laughs> when I when I got in and looked at everyone no else, background. and I was like, "Are you kidding me?" I have there no was a clerical error. <laughs> exactly, exactly. I was like, "I must, I must interview very well because there is no way, based on my resume, I belong here." Um, nope. What I have learned in my experience with these people is that um, the board at Sinai and Synapses, and especially Jeff, are excellent judges of character. They are really good at seeing through the resume and to the person and identifying who are the people who are truly curious and kind and will collaborate in unique and interesting and constructive ways. And there is a reason why you're here uh, just as much as there is that I'm here. So to that end, I want to ask you the question here at the end of our time together that I have asked everyone so far. Um, and that is, what is one thing that you wish everyone knew about the world? Um, one thing I wish everyone knew about the world was whether or not we really have an impact on it. And I think that because the, I think that having that question settled, which in, in which I believe it would firmly be settled, yes of course we have an impact on it, would, would mean that it's, not, it's no longer a debate, uh, no longer a culture war, and not a, you know, not a matter of, it becomes, a, it becomes then a matter of faith, right? That the things we do matter, and that uh, we have responsibility to care for this planet we're on, and that, you know, we have to do something to, to, to leave it for the next generation. And, and I think right now, the notion that either there's nothing we can do or that um, what we do doesn't ma- doesn't make a difference is it's dangerous right it means that we are in danger of losing that faith and so that to me is the big one i don't know is the answer that i can give you right now <laughs> such a wonderful answer <laughs> um, but i do think yeah, I think if we could have that settled, you know, that would be great. And it's settled to me, but, you know, to have it settled for everyone would be just, just about. Thank you so much for being here um, and for, Thanks, Zach. for chatting with me and with Ian, who has fallen silent at the end of our interview because he had a two o'clock meeting he had to run off to. But thank you for the work that you're doing uh, both locally and through the fellowship and in all the things that you're that you're up to thanks Zach and thank you for inviting me um, it's been a blast I hope we'll do it again <laughs>